you know, I used to just judge moot court because it was my responsibility to do that. And now it's the thing I look forward to most because it breaks the humdrum of working with seasoned and maybe sometimes cynical colleagues who've done this for like 20 years. When you see young people get so immersed and excited about the prospect of arguing a case before a panel of DDGs or former appellate body members or case authors, it's infectious. Um, and I think that really is, as I said, it's like the holy grail. It's, it's the greatest thing I think uh, the trade community now has to offer to young people. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it. The Rodolfo Rivas Project. That was Dr. Janiv Remy. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Thank you for listening. Janiv is an international trade lawyer and director of the Shridat Ramphal Center, SRC, a leading center in the Caribbean for international trade law policy and services. She's had a successful career spanning over 20 years in international trade. She's advised governments and private stakeholders on international trade matters, focusing on dispute settlement under the auspices of the World Trade Organization. As SRC's director, she coordinates SRC's flagship, flagship Masters in International Trade Policy Program, MITP. She also lectures on law and trade aspects of Caribbean regional integration, but that just scratches the surface. Yaniv was also a legal officer at the Appellate Body Secretariat at the WTO. That's where I met her. During our conversation, she talks about the duty to give back to your community, the inspirational power of role models and education, and how the Caribbean flexes its muscle in international trade. We talked about the camaraderie at the Appellate Body and how this experience marked mark her. We also name, name drop a lot, but that just shows how small the world of international trade is and how everybody knows everybody. Geneve is doing a fantastic job and she's a delightful person. I had a lot of fun talking to her and we covered a lot. So do yourself a favor and listen to this conversation. After it, I am sure you will feel inspired. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Oh, Geneve, it's really great to see you. Nice to see you too. Actually, Adolfo. we've been, we wanted to do this for maybe like two years. You were one of my first guests that I had planned. Oh, <laughs> so sorry, it took so happen. long. Yes, but I, I'm really, really, um, I feel privileged <laughs> to do this and in person, you know. Yes, well, I think that, that that has 
for me, like it has to be in person. And if not, it's not it's not really the same. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's great to see you again after many years. Yes. Actually, yes. Actually, well, we can talk about that when we get to that about the upper body. But right. Like maybe tell me a bit about like growing up. You're from Saint Lucia. Is that correct? Yes, I'm from Saint Lucia, which is a very small island um, in the Caribbean, in the Lesser Antilles. So we. If you want to kind of think about us in relation to, uh, you know, better known entities, we're south of North America, um, north of South America. We kind of are nestled in the gentle arc archipelago of Caribbean islands. Um, I grew up very, very carefree and happy, um, kind of idyllic. I, I'm from a family of five, my parents and my two older sisters. Okay. Um, I very early on knew that I didn't want to follow in the footsteps of my father and sisters and mother, which were more science kind of science. background okay. and medicine. I always knew I wanted to do something in the arts, something where really? talking was going to be sort of pivotal. <laughs> but, but that's not what you're doing, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so. But more sort of, yeah, more kind of debating, arguing. Yeah, so I guess that's the connection. Exactly. Yeah. And, and sort of diplomatic, um, something that would require me to represent my region. Is, um, but you eventually went into law. Is the law in St. Lucia, is it common law or civil law? We're common law. We have a tinge of civil law, um, you know, because of our, it's a Romano-Dutch tradition. Um, and it based on our French um, um, sort of ancestry uh, in, in St. Lucia, exactly, the civil code. But it's predominantly uh, sort of common law. And I, I was influenced a lot by my aunt, who was a lawyer at the time. Um, and she encouraged me to be a lawyer. And when I went to law school, I kind of knew I didn't want to do straight-laced black-letter law. Uh, and that's when I was introduced to international trade law, and I was like, this is exactly what I want to do, because it was so <laughs> interdisciplinary. But it was why, why my, you didn't mm, want like the more traditional route, like you thought it was? I guess I, I didn't, I, I guess because of my, as I mentioned before, I wanted to be, do something representative, something diplomatic, but I didn't want to veer too far away from the law. Um, and I wanted something creative. And yeah. I found trade law to have all these different influences on it. And when I landed on it, literally in my third year of my LLB, my undergraduate degree, I was like, this is finally something that I can like sink my teeth into. Um, and then when I learned about the WTO, well, whoa, that was the instant love affair. And I just from then on, I guess in retrospect, it, it kind of became my lodestar. It's like, well, this is what I want to do with my life. I feel lucky because I know a lot of people go around not knowing. And I didn't know up to that point. Like, I was relatively successful in, in the other subjects. But I think I really was excited by the prospect of trade law. And so that's kind of been... I think you're right in saying that it's lucky. Yeah. Like, I still don't know it. Yeah, what Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> After many years later. <laughs> well, I think I now that I've done it for so long, I, I still want to... I'm not sure what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that in that sense, yeah, like uh, I understand you. Yeah, <laughs> but that's a great thing about I think international trade law. It bleeds into policy. It bleeds into po politics. There's so many avenues you can pursue. Yeah, actually, that was a, a blessing in disguise. I think that I only discovered like recently, because I, 
Mm. And this is something that happened to me. Like I thought that I was a lawyer, and like then like I met you at the appellate body, so I yes. went that route. So I thought like, well, you have to become a lawyer like this, yes. like everyone else. Yes. And I didn't know if I really wanted to do that. Yeah. But then like I think that trade law gives you the opportunity. Trade law, trade policy, or international yes. trade gives you the opportunity to go into academics, into exactly. policy, like exactly. more international relations, like everything. I mean, I think for those of us who tread this path, we necessarily, I think, are working outside of the well-trodden avenues in law. Um, and it, it can feel sometimes very lonely. You know, you're doing things that other people in your cohort at university may, may not have done. Um, you go back home sometimes, so when I left Geneva to go back to the Caribbean, you see a lot of my friends who had stuck with sort of the more traditional avenues, oh, they're partners in law firms, or they're, you know, in charge of attorney general's chambers, or they're into politics, and they kind of pursue a much more conventional path, and you may think, uh, did I make the right choice? But I think for me, it's so much more about the journey, like what it what this path has opened up and it's such a privilege to have met so many people and I would not have changed it even if yeah at the end you know at the end you see people kind of doing amazing things back home you still kind of count yourself lucky for having experienced some, such a multidisciplinary and international way of thinking about law. But it's true what you're saying and it happens to me when I go back <laughs> home like I see all of my friends and they their partners are doing yes, like things. Yeah. And for a long time, because I, I I think my career now is going well, but for a long time it I felt that it wasn't. Exactly. And I was always wondering, did I make the right decision? Yeah. <laughs> I still wonder that. <laughs> I mean I think but that's the beauty of it. I think the minute you just learn to embrace the journey unless and I'm, it's not, I'm not talking idealistically and, oh, you know, just go for the ride. You still have a mortgage to pay, right? You still have kids that you need to, um, you need to raise. You still have obligations. But I just feel like those of us who dared to go in a different direction and kind of followed our instincts and, and our hearts, um, it just... The payoff may be different, yeah. but the, I wouldn't trade the experience. Yeah. With all the uncertainty which you had, which I still have, it's never you know, going to be an easy path, but it's certainly a rewarding one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But then going back to yeah. law school, you said that you, you found trade, and then how did you, like, did you start pursuing, like, how did you get into more involved in, in that world? Uh, so my students often ask me, you know, how, how do I make it? How do I, you know, and I think for me, I can say, ha you know, hand on heart, it really was just luck. And a lot of it was just following instinct and what was available. So I did the, my third year, I was introduced to something called, at the time it was International Development and Economic Law at the University of the West Indies. And I always knew I wanted to do some part of my schooling in the UK and in Cambridge or Oxford and so I applied got through to Cambridge and I just decided then that I was going to just dig into international trade um, and at the time it was still very academic I, I didn't know where it was going to take me and it's really flying blind you don't know where your interest is naturally going to lead you 
Well, I think the big break came for me after I had done my master's and somebody sent me because they knew I really liked trade. The day before the application closing for a, a, a gig, an internship in the Caribbean, at the time it was representing the region as an intern in a trade um, organization and I applied and I got in. And once I got ensconced in sort of the, let's call it the, the elite of trade negotiations at the time, as an intern, a lowly intern, I would say that's when things just kind of opened up to me. So I, I did the internship there in, and it was at the regional negotiating machinery at the time. It's now called the Office of Trade Negotiations. I did a stint in Jamaica in the office there. And the real big break came when I did a, a boot court of, ah. of, of fake moot court. It wasn't one of the Elsa ones at the time. I don't think Elsa was in existence, but I actually was, you know, doing a simulation for a trade officials meeting. I got sent to um, a, a workshop and Gabrielle Marceau was actually um, one of the, the judges of the moot court. And I met her. She was happy with the way I presented myself, and she said, you should apply for an internship. And once I applied for the internship, that's really where things, in the WTO, and that's really where things. So I always credit Gabrielle for you know, being my first sort of mentor. And I think it's so important for those of us who are in this field to really encourage, pave the way for students because that's how they get into trade. It's somebody who brings you in always. Very rarely is it just you apply and you get through. Somebody has to invest in you. Somebody has to sponsor yeah, cool. you. Somebody has to believe in you. And I think, you know, that really makes a huge difference, which is why for me it's important to go back to my region and work with students there. For me, it was Jorge Huerta. Yeah, what was it? Yeah, who was it for you? <laughs> yeah, Jorge yeah. Huerta. So he, I didn't know anything about trade, and he, he brought me in, and now I am here. <laughs> and it's absolutely true. But, but it's true what you're saying. And also, like, I want to go back to something that you mentioned about the mood court, because I've seen, like, that avenue of the mood court being, like, a way that many people can use to, to get into this world. Absolutely. It's, I feel like it's the production line. Yeah. Because I was judging, so I'm now on the Elsa Moot Court, you know, academic board. And I, I, I happened to be in Geneva this summer, well, the last week, when the finals had happened. And when I went back to the Caribbean, having, you know, lived here for 12 years, I went back to the Caribbean. And that's what I've been doing for the past sort of four years. And I, I, I fielded the first, with the law school, the first Elsa moot court team. And I feel like that first set of students, well, we have, we've had two sets of students. They are now so interested in trade. And I feel personally like that's my biggest accomplishment. <laughs> One of them is to go back, bring things like trade lab, bring things like Elsa, because students there who are interested, they just need somebody who has done it to say, you can do it. I did it, you can do it. And on Elsa, when I judged the teams this year, it was so invigorating. And the team, one of the teams that actually won the competition, Zurich, I judged them in the preliminary rounds. And they came up afterwards and they said, you know, some things that the panel said to us stuck with us. And you think, you know, it's nice to make a big splash in trade when you, you have a bigger responsibility, like you're arguing a case, but Actually, I think the things that really count are when you inspire 
younger people who just because you've kind of made it in their view and you show them that they can do it too that's the real legacy i think we have in trade yeah i agree it's true and something that you say which maybe you don't give so much importance like it can change their their life it's true but having said that because i i do talk to a lot of young people and i also want to balance that that you can do it with telling them that it's difficult yeah. because It's not. It's not an easy. No. It's not an easy path, and they're probably going to face a lot of rejections along the way. Yes. And you have to become. You have to build like a callus. I feel. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. How do you right. balance like the advice, but also uh, encouraging? That's a really good insight, Rodolfo. Um, because you're you're absolutely correct that not everyone is going to. I wish everyone. Right. Of course, you know, I wish everyone would. I don't want to say make it because it almost sounds like deterministic, like you have to do well to make it in this field and you have to achieve certain things. I think the biggest um, lesson to me was you really have to paddle your own canoe. And for some people who started with me, for instance, as interns, they branched out into completely different fields. So one of them left here and she went to work at the United, like I think it's the International Postal Unit. Mm. Um, others just veered out of trade and went back to their, their countries and did something very different. It doesn't really matter in my view where you end up so much as you feel inspired by what you're doing and there will be rejection. I didn't get everything I applied for I remember when I was coaching a moot court team at Duke University, we didn't make it to the finals. Um, and even, you know, even though my students now did really well, you didn't make it to the finals. So students feel very disappointed. But the most important thing is to just get up and keep going. And if that leads you to a completely different space, a different um, area, You, if you love trade and you want to bring it to that area, you bring it to that area. So health now, and the great thing about the international trade space is that it is bleeding into everything else, whether it's the environment or health or vaccines. So it's no longer as I think self-contained as it was, as it used yeah. to be. You can actually bring your trade background to a whole host of areas, even things that are t traditionally thought of as domestic law. Yeah. Um, so, it, again, I'm not wedded so much to the outcome and where you end up. If you really have a desire, however, to kind of be, you know, a trade lawyer, I would say dig it and keep trying, but don't miss the forest for the trees. Like, don't, don't pass up opportunities that you may not think are directly on your path because you can find your way back or that path can lead you to somewhere completely new. You become, you know, a pioneer in that field. You create something out of it. And it's not all blue skies. Yeah. I'm not trying to idealize the experience. You are going to some, I think a lot of my friends and I go through areas where there's a doldrum, like there's no wind. You just kind of feel like you're going through the motions. Even now, some of the people who I've worked with, they say to me, boy, I'm stuck. And these are people who you think, oh, they have everything made. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. And we still feel stuck. Like some days I wake up and I feel stuck. I'm like, but, I, but I think that's good, no? Because that keeps you moving forward. It does. If not, like you, 
if you already feel like you've done everything, even if you've done, like... I think, I think the difference for people who are, I think, self-fulfilled is there's a curiosity always. I think if you feel you've reached, I mean, the people who I really admire and who've ascended what we call the heights of trade, they're constantly reinventing themselves. They're not content with just staying in one place. They're always, you know, when you talk to them, you can feel the energy. They're like, oh, have you thought about this new area? You know what? And then also, Rodolfo, there comes a point in time where other things occupy your attention. So you may not be progressing in leaps and bounds in trade, yeah. but you may be doing other things. You may be starting a family, or you may be buying a new house, or you may be investing in your friendship. Somebody in your family isn't well, and your attention is kind of diverted. And that's okay too, like life is happening to us. Yeah. And I think my message would really be just like embrace where you are without kind of becoming complacent, but accept that it's not always gonna be, you're not always gonna be doing what you wanna do and at the pace you want to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, I just kept thinking about what you were saying because yeah, that, that's been so true to me. But yeah, what part of it well, is true to you? Well, because you're saying like, um, it's true like when, I, when people reach out to me, I want to inspire them, but I also feel like I tell them, mm. I tell them like, it's hard. And if I discourage them by telling them it's hard, then they were probably not built for this that's true <laughs> and like for me like it's like this is the first obstacle if you come back yeah maybe you'll yeah. be able to make it because this is but regardless of that they don't have to be in trade like the experience that they get here is gonna be useful exactly. in whatever they do exactly like for example yeah. the mood court i think that the mood court can so be great. like actually i feel that the mood court is like a compressed and sometimes I feel it's even more valuable than doing a master's degree yeah because it's like practical yes. but it's also like it has like everything, everything together and and you can see like how you use everything and it can take you higher or like the experience itself is so valuable and I think it's such a compressed and intense period of yeah. time that a lot of you know friendships are made yeah. Friendships break up. The the pressure of working as a team is incredible. Making your teammates um, proud of you, your coach proud of you, and digging in really, really deep. I mean, having seen the ugly part because I was involved in coaching a team, but also, I mean, as a student coach, and also now as a you know course director, watching the students grow, it is the most amazing. I think that and Trade Lab outside of the formal sort of process of doing a master's or an undergrad law degree. I don't think anything in such a compressed period of time prepares students for the real world yeah. of trade law. There's, I, I, I can't, I couldn't Even if you like do a, a study for a test, it's not the same thing. It's not yeah. the same because this involves day in, day out being committed, um, being, you know, practicing, disappointing, um, feeling that high of getting through to a next round. It's, there's nothing like it. And the other thing that I, I, I took from what you say, which I also believe it, is um, like the, the experience of being around like young people. Mm. Because sometimes in our work, like you, 
you maybe become disenchanted. And like to me, it's a great way to like be re-energized, just to be around young people. And like to, to see like the ideas that they think like, they sometimes I look back and I thought, ah, this was impossible, but they don't think it's impossible. Exactly. And when they don't think it's impossible, I'm like, well, you are blessed because <laughs> I used to think it was impossible. But that also re-energizes and pushes you like forward. You, I was saying that, I mean, one of my uh, ex-colleagues here at the WTO was telling me the exact same thing. He was saying, you know, I used to just judge moot court because it was my responsibility to do that. And now it's the thing I look forward to most because it breaks the humdrum of working with seasoned and maybe sometimes cynical colleagues who've done this for like 20 years. When you see young people get so immersed and excited about the prospect of arguing a case before a panel of DDGs or former appellate body members or case authors, it's infectious. Um, and I think that really is, as I said, it's like the holy grail. It's, it's the greatest thing I think the trade community now has to offer to young people. But there's another avenue which I really believe in, which is a study tour that my students are doing now. So my student, the reason I'm in Geneva now is the program I, I direct now, it's the Masters in Trade Policy at the University of the West Indies and the Sridhar Ramphal Center, it's a mouthful. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> it's actually the Sridhar Ramphal Center for International okay. Trade Law Policy and Services. I inherited it. It's a big name because it's named after a big Caribbean statesman who was a former um, Commonwealth Secretariat um, Secretary General, and he really sort of made the Caribbean sort of get up and stand up and get noticed in the field of international trade. Um, and diplomacy. Uh, he was also a, you know, a chancellor at Warwick University, so he's also made his name internationally. He's a Guyanese statesman and now represents Guyana even in cross-boundary disputes. So very big name to live up to. Um, but the, the course that we do is, there's a nine-month sort of theoretical component where you, you study an interdisciplinary approach. It's not a law program, it's law, economics, policy, etc. So most of my students are actually not law students. And nine months into the program, they then come and they are here in Geneva for three months, three, two weeks. Um, and this is where trade comes alive. This year we, we slightly changed the format and the students would, what we call shadowing CARICOM ambassadors. So they attended meetings with them, etc., for the first two, three days of the tour. And they found that so invigorating, like being asked to go with an ambassador to a reception or to a TFA meeting. And then after that, for the next week, we really were treated at all the international organizations we visited, where we had experts talking about outcomes in MC12 or the blue economy or, um, you know, ACWL also did uh, a presentation, so an IISD and WIPO and ITC. These students are seeing in real life what they've been studying for nine months and there's nothing that can replicate that experience. Yeah. And when the DG speaks to you and she sets aside a little time in her very busy diary to come and speak to students and say, what you're doing is important. I don't think I could have replicated that in a classroom. Um, so I think the more experiential and practical we can make trade for young people at a very early stage in their career, 
so there's three, I would say there are three, there's a trifecta impact. One, you can do, you as individuals can select students and coach them, and that's more one-on-one. -on -one. We have an obligation to go back to our countries or be here in Geneva and seek out students and encourage them. One is that, the other I would say, as we discussed, is moot court. Um, and then the third is through these kinds of study tours, whether it's to Geneva or Brussels or, you know, now in the global south, we should start doing these trips to each other's countries, like the AFCFTA, we should go and learn about that experience. The more we do these kinds of, I think, study tours with our students, the more trade becomes a live topic, which is what attracted me to it in the first place. And I think it's also important what you're saying about the obligation. Because like I, I started teaching in my law school, where I went to law school in Guadalajara. Yes. And actually it takes a lot of time. But the, because people ask me, like, why do you do this? It takes a lot of time. But I do feel that there's like this obligation, and specifically to my university, yeah. that gave me so much, yeah. and like to, like to my region, yeah. which is what you said. Like there is, I think that that calling to give a little bit back yeah. to your community. Yes, I I think in my later years, so <laughs> you know, I'm not new on the scene, and I know I'm, and you know, there's a there comes a point. It's not that you are not you don't care about your career. I mean. Let's face it, we're still young enough to want to excel um, and, you know, make a, make a name for, what, for ourselves. I, I'm not going to be um, dishonest about it. It's, there's still a, a, a sense of I want to achieve a self-actualization. But I think what has been surprising to me is how important it has, maybe even more important it has been for me to be a beacon of sorts, I mean, without setting myself up on a pedestal, which no, I don't belong on. But kind of just by being yourself, you don't need to be anything else. You don't need to uh, acquire huge titles. But just because you've gone through it, you become an example. Mm -hmm. And the important thing for me is not to tell them to replicate it, not to try to follow what I did, but to really get the confidence to see somebody doing it their own way and finding self-fulfillment from it. Um, and it could be somebody in your region, but equally it could be somebody from a whole other part of the world. You know, so... But I think that there's a lot of value to see someone who's from your region, just like you. That is Because true. you... Maybe it happened to me when I was in Guadalajara. I'm like, mm. how is someone from Guadalajara going to work mm. internationally? Like, mm. That never happens. But then you see other people who did it. You're like, he did it. So he or she did it. So maybe I can also do it. Especially if the formative years are, you know, in the place that you grew up. And I think, I mean, I think the DG is so inspirational for so many different reasons. I mean, she's the most, I think, relatable <laughs> leader. One of them, anyway, that I've met. The other one is obviously the Prime Minister of Barbados. Like, you sit in a room with them and everything else their titles and what they've accomplished matters less than really talking to you as a person. Um, and then you realize that they're phenomenal in their own right. I don't want to take away from what they've accomplished and they must have had to go through a whole lot. But they're here and they're comfortable where they are and they make no apologies for who they are. And they, their experiences are often very relatable. So. 
you know, you grew up in a little island or in a little town and your parents invested in you, or maybe they didn't, but your community invested in you. And it's hard to walk away from that and not feel like in your own small way you need to do the same thing. It's just been like, I feel a little bit like really, really more than a little bit privileged. And then the other aspect here, which I, is my friendships. You know, there's a very fuzzy feeling about Geneva because these are where I made some of my best friends. So being in Geneva is also very personal for me. Um, people who know you, who've seen you at your, you know, when you started out in the field. Um, people who have gone, you know, further, and, uh, you know, there's always at the appellate body, and we were talking about this before, there's something really, really special about the time we spent at the appellate body. And you were an intern there, you know. Um, yeah, actually, I want to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, so how did you, you, you came as an intern to which division? Legal Affairs. Legal Affairs. Yes, I worked in Legal Affairs. And with Gabrielle. With Gabrielle yeah. on the steel case, <laughs> steel <laughs> safeguards. That was huge. Um, and then I... That was just the three months. And what that did is it showed me up close what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. The internship showed me. And, and at the time, it was really, really difficult for me to imagine how I would get into the appellate body or the, at the time, the legal affairs division. Because one, I was really young. I was 21 when I did my internship. And most of the people applying for internships, they had like experience working in a law firm or I had just done my master's. But it's like, how am I gonna get in? So you did your master's like really young. I did my master's immediately after my LLB. And, um, and so I came, I, I just saw an opening and somebody actually said to me, well, why not apply? And I, at the time I was pursuing a, an SJD at Duke University. Oh yeah, I was going to ask you about Duke because you mentioned Duke, but uh, yes. you, you started at Duke? So I, I, I knew I wanted to find a way to get into the WTO and I, I didn't have work experience. I said, well, let me try a PhD. And then I applied to the US and at the time, well, they don't do, you don't get a PhD in law in the US. You have to do an SJD. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to Jos Paulin and I said, listen, I'm a young student. I've just left university. I'm working with the, the regional negotiating machine. I really want to further my studies. And he said, come and visit the university. He was at Duke at the time. Again, just very personal experiences that, of course, he was Paulin is, you know, huge on the trade law scene. At the time, he was a younger academic, but still prodigious, like writing, you know, amazing treaties on his concept of conflict of laws. And anyway, so I read, I read some of his work and I, and I think we had um, asked him to look at some issue on Caribbean trade. Anyway, and he said, why not? Because when they're, when they're young and they're still like kind of establishing themselves, they're, they're very keen for people to come and study as, as, you know, students under them. And I went to Duke, I started doing the SJD and then the opening at the appellate body came up. And I was told, well, there's a new director there um, and I'm sure he's open to the younger students applying, etc. He's 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 open minded and I applied, got the interview, and myself and another very good friend of mine now, we got in. And of course I had to make a decision of whether I should stay at Duke or but it was not really an option. I, I knew I wanted to come. <laughs> 
You didn't try to do both? I, well, I did. So what I did is I transferred the, uh, the SJD to a PhD program at the Graduate Institute. Mm -hmm. I changed my topics. Yost, um, Professor Paulin, eventually also moved back to Geneva. And so I continued my, um, he, he continued on as my supervisor. And so I kind of started at the appellate body that way. That was in 2006. And, and this was like, I guess like some very formative years for both for you, but also for the appellate body itself. Yes, well, the appellate body, remember they had started off in 95 and you know, the working procedures, etc. So I was there when there was like, maybe it was through its third or something iteration of the bench. And so it had kind of become, you know, uh, the secretariat itself was, I remember when I was, as a, I was here as an intern in legal affairs, like the appellate body staff always kept themselves very separate and apart from everybody else. And that's because they needed to remain independent. But it was always something that, you know, we were looking at and saying, oh, I know, it's cute. I don't know what goes on at that secretariat. So once I got in, I, I realized that it's, it's a real special place, not because anybody inside of there thinks they're better than anyone else at all. It's more that because of the nature of the work, we're involved in servicing the appellate body members. Um, and, and also, you know, there's such a great camaraderie there. I mean, it's the best place I, I well, that and another place, it's sort of my two top um, places to work as a young lawyer. And yeah, just, it, and what made it really special were the people, yeah. was the people. They're all over, from all over the world, united in a common um, intent to, to churn out reports um, by the appellate body members that were high quality and you offered your services without, without any personal intent, you know, ambition in mind. You just wanted to get the job done. And I also think, well, there's two things, that, because that's where I met you at the appellate body. Yes. And were you my intern? Were you? No, I was Victoria. Oh, yeah. okay, because they assign us interns <laughs> yeah, that we are mentor. Yes. I was assigned to I'm really impressed by her. Oh my, anyway. everybody is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but talking about like the two things that I really struck me when, when I got there was what you mentioned, the, the sense of camaraderie. It was like a big family. Absolutely. And I was an intern, so I mean, I think that I had, I had some way in. But I still, I still felt like an outsider. outsider. But not because of anything that any of you did. Yeah. It was just like I was an intern, so you probably seen like so many interns come and go. But like I remember being like, oh, this is like a big family. Like it's amazing the way that, yeah, like it's, it's like, it's great. And I thought that I would have that throughout my career. And it's very difficult to replicate. I only had that there and at, at WIPO. Yeah. But I've, I've never had it since. And I think it's a mistake to try to replicate it because, and even I think we were having, again, as I said, some of the people that I, I worked with there are still my best friends. And we were having a conversation recently about, well, imagine if we were to all come back and work at the appellate body, what would it, well, the appellate body that doesn't exist. <laughs> but by the way, we're doing this interview in the in what used to be the appellate body offices. Yes, exactly. That's a nostalgia for you, Rodolfo. Thank you. Um, and we were saying, you know, it wouldn't, I don't think you could come back and, and it would kind of, we'd have to do something fresh. 
something new, something different, if we were all to come back and converge in this place, because it was just the time. It was a time when the rule of law and dispute settlement was still very highly regarded. The appellate body was still seen as, you know, doing doing its job. There were always, I think, criticisms of overstepping, but it had not reached the fever pitch that we see in recent years. And I think people still had a very healthy respect for the work that was being done by the Secretariat. And um, it's just, for me, it's really sad that things have not worked out for the appellate body just because of the experience I had as part of the Secretariat and knowing the quality and the caliber of people that worked on, you know, with the judges on the reports. Um, and I'm just very, very hopeful that something, even if it's a new thing, will replace what we had and maybe we just have to think in new ways about what we can do with the dispute settlement. But it was a, a real um, special, special time. And as we said, some of the best, the best years of my working life. Absolutely. I even like, I mean, I was there briefly, but when all this started happening, like all these issues and mm. everything, I felt it like personally. Yes, I think <laughs> it's hard not to. <laughs> Although, of course, it's not personal and the members... Yeah, but I mean, that having just been through that, it was like, I felt like I was part of that family. Me too. And I, I, I think, I don't think you ever lose, feel, lose the feeling that you were part of something very special. Of course, you respect the right of the members to, you know, appraise it, see if it still is fit for purpose. That, that's what I'm saying has no bearing on, on what can be done to improve it. There's always room for improvement. Um, but... I do know that the, if there were any question about the intentions of the staff and how they saw their role, it certainly is not anything that I would, I look back and, and would critique at all. I think if, if people really thought they were doing a, doing a service to the international trade community. And the other thing that I was going to mention is that there were every, well, there were actually, while I was there, there were two people from St. Lucia, you and Claude, <laughs> which I was wondering, like, whoa, like, it's really well represented. <laughs> but, yes. like, my, what I wanted to say is that actually, mm. it was, like, people from everywhere in the world. And that's it how was. I imagine how international organizations, should, how the world should be, like, people from everywhere in the world just trying to work and, like, do something. I know. Unfortunately, it's not like that, but... No, like not. that microcosm of yeah. the applet body was what I envisioned like the world to be. <laughs> it, 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 we had our own UN, you know. <laughs> it's true, and I think, um, yeah, if you think about it just in terms of numbers, St. Lucia and the Caribbean is probably overrepresented. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's more than just coincidence. And, and I'm not saying that to say that any, you know, we didn't deserve to be here, but. The point we were making about how important it is that you are a, whether you know it or not, you are an inspiration to other people from your part of the world. So another person from Guadalajara is a very good friend of mine, um, Professor Ednita. Um, Edna, we call her Ednita. <laughs> <laughs> Ramirez. Um, and obviously, you know, when you see somebody who is proximate to you doing it, you are inspired. I, I mean, I'm not saying that that's necessarily what happened 
with Claude, but, huh? he, but even like that, like it was me from Mexico and it was also Christian from Mexico exact, at the same time. Exactly. So we're like two from Mexico, two from San Lucia. <laughs> exactly. And these are little little parts of the world, like small. Well, maybe not so much Mexico, but you know, these are parts of the world that otherwise you may not have ever heard of. And 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 what I loved about step once you stepped into that appellate body corridor, you know, where it used to be, I you used to have that orange carpet it was all of us was like kind of crammed into a very small space I mean we subsequently moved to a different part of the building but when I joined it was a very very literally close-knit community like people had to work together and there's a bond that you inspire as a result of that that makes nationality less important than that common purpose and it's not that you ignore each other's backgrounds in fact we wanted to know more about each other's backgrounds. So I learned so much about, you know, Caipirinhas, and I learned so much about, you know, um, uh, you know, different parts of the world, like where to visit on my holidays, or Shaman in China, or, you know, parts of um, British Columbia. You just become so much more than just your job as well. And so after that, you went to, to a law firm. Like, what was the, yes. the process in, if you can share it, like, yes. in making that decision? Yes, so I, I actually, <laughs> we go, everything is kind of very much intertwined. So I was, remember I said I had tra transferred my PhD to Geneva and with a graduate institute, but there came a point when I actually had to submit it. <laughs> 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 and um, that was like maybe three, four years into being here, and I said, I needed a sabbatical, a short sabbatical, to complete the PhD and submit it. And whilst, when, you know, that's the other thing. Once you step away from something for a while, you get different perspectives. And I realized, mm, I've been at the appellate body now for four, five, six years. Actually, at the time, it was more six. Maybe I need to do something a little bit different. And again, landed in luck. I was approached by a law firm and asked, you know, is, is that a different kind of perspective you'd like to get? Went through the process of, a, you know, getting interviewed for that and eventually, yeah, I, as when I've submitted my PhD, I thought maybe I need to move on to something else. And um, yeah, I, I moved to Sydney, Austin, which I still think, um, you know, is one of the top law firms for international trade, certainly it has distinguished itself as a pioneering um, um, law firm on, on the international trade front. Um, did that for another five years. Um, oh, so almost like the same amount of time that you were at the Yeah. So that seems to be like the cycle. Like five <laughs> years. <laughs> I think you get enough of an experience to, to know if this is something you want to stay in or something that what you want to What were some of like the, the differences in, in like your work that you saw from being at the appellate ah. body to the local? Oh gosh, it's so different but so similar. I think for the first time I sort of I understood what it means to craft a submission with a client in mind. Obviously when we worked with the judges we were trying to assist in, you know, impartially looking at different submissions and you know figuring out where, where was where was the, the truth where, where was the right decision in some ways it's much easier being in a law firm because you have a 
predetermined outcome. You, you have to defend your client. And so the way in which you do so is where the creativity comes in. There's much more room, I think, for creative thinking in, in some ways when you're in a law firm. Um, so that's more like what you wanted to do initially when you were, when you were younger. Yes, yes. <laughs> But it's so strange because it's done in a corporate environment. I mean, what I loved about being at the appellate body is that you're not billing. <laughs> you know, you don't, if you spend 10 hours on one paragraph, it doesn't matter. It's your time. Whereas when you're in a, in a law firm, and, and I think I've heard people say you really need that crucible of a law firm to be efficient, and I can understand because, you know, time is money. You're not going to stay on one issue um, when, when the clock is ticking. Um, so from that perspective, you learn to be very efficient. And um, you also kind of, I guess you clean up your, you have to clean up good to, for the front facing role of liaising with clients and other partner, like partners in the law firm in different departments. So the, the, the great thing about working in a big sprawling law firm is that you're part of a bigger machinery. And so sometimes you're even representing positions to other parts of the firm that necessarily are not specialists in trade law. So you, you're even working internally with other departments and explaining uh, a legal problem from the trade angle. And that, I mean, that I got more from Washington. So I also did a short stint in the Washington office. Um, so yeah, I mean, certain, the, the good thing about the Sydney at the time was that there were a lot of people who had been through the WTO system. So there was that WTO kind of band of brothers and sisters who worked there and understood the system from the inside. And so that was comforting, but the macro environment is very different. So you kind of take that, but you also adapt it to working with clients, working with other lawyers and, um, yeah, it was it was quite different, but it felt familiar because you had trade law experience um, working at the WTO, which kind of really is is pivotal in being successful in litigating for clients. And after that, like maybe you felt like you were missing the idyllic life in. Yeah. <laughs> well, after that, and I'm sure your your viewers and listeners must be bored of my. <laughs> ranting by now. Um, after that, I, I decided it was time to go back home. Um, I don't know if there were push or pull factors, you know, where people ask, why did you leave? Especially my students in the Caribbean say, why did you leave Geneva? You, you seem so happy. Because everyone no. that I know that's here in Geneva, they want to stay, they don't want to leave. But like equally, there's many people who actually leave. Maybe they, they've had enough of Geneva. Yeah, I mean, I love the people at, in Geneva, but you know, there's a there's a calling at some point for you to make a difference. And I think if you have a if you have your own family, then that's a calling. You know, you you invested in your children or in your in your family. For me, because I I didn't at the time have you know any of my, my family of my own. I mean, I certainly have family here, and I consider, I have a cousin here, and I also consider my appellate body family still to be my family. I, I just felt it was time, and your parents are getting older, and you're seeing your niece and nephews growing up. There was something about being back home that I needed, mm. and I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. 
an opportunity came up um, to be part of a center for trade law and policy and services at the Sridhar Ramphal Center. And I thought, well, let me apply. In the end, I went in as the deputy director there. And it was an opportunity to take all that I had learned, but adapt it to a more academic research, outreach, um, sort of, or, you know, kind of orientation. And, and that's what I've been doing for the past four years. So I'm now the director of the center. I had an opportunity to think about the, you know, the course content for our master's in trade policy. I also think the center has a huge opportunity to tell the story of trade from a Caribbean small state background, which is where I try to pivot the center. I mean, we're still very small and young and um, aspirational. Like I look at the trapkas and the Tralax in trade, and these are sort of my, um, you know, my go-tos when I when I feel like I need the inspiration. Um, so these global centers, or oh, I know Jindal is doing a lot in India. So these global south centers that are focusing on the needs of their region. Yeah. This is where I am now. And I also, I mean, lastly, like uh, you said, like we're <laughs> like reaching an hour, but lastly, I just wanted to say that I think that, and maybe you can share a bit more of your views, but I think that the Caribbean is like really a strong presence here at uh, yeah. in trade in general but specifically here at the WTO I mean I see the the delegates from all of the of the region yeah. I actually sit next to Jamaica oh, usually. Ambassador Spencer and, yes. and they are really active they're really doing a lot and they are mm -hmm. I think maybe even punching above their weight yes. which is is very good and I think yes. that is because of efforts like what you're doing in the region Thank you. but like a cumula cumulative of this What can you tell me about it? No, you're right. I, I feel like there's a sort of a, a perfect storm happening in trade in the Caribbean. I know. I'm not sure the messaging of the importance of trade is filtering to the man on the street. I still think there's a lot more that we can do to navigate or to explain to people in the region like why what is happening at the WTO is so impactful on their everyday lives and outcomes. But... And, and that's part of the job I see for the center that I'm, I'm leading is to proselytize and say, this is important because I think we were helped by the fact that there's food security issues that are touching the region, vaccines and COVID, women and trade issues or climate change. Like this is a time when trade matters the most, at least in the consciousness of the Caribbean people. I'm not sure they yet see the connection with the WTO. And that's something I think as a global community, we need to to really think about how we making ourselves relevant to the, to the at, at the very, very, very basic level. But you're right that the, the Caribbean is doing a lot. On negotiations, my understanding is that at MC12, both at the level of the, co the conveners and, you know, like very, very important positions. I was really, even in, I was really impressed by the Minister of Jamaica. Oh, She was yes. really impressive. Yes, yeah. um, Honorable Kamina Johnson. Yeah. And, and we also had, you know, Jamaica, we had Barbados, we had St. Vincent de Grenadines in really key positions um, in the ministerial. We have also a Caribbean St. Lucian in the DGO um, as an advisor, senior advisor to the director general. And we do have very busy, active um, ambassadors. So Jamaica, Barbados, um, 
Right? We, we sort of have people who are you know, leading the missions also in fish and so Guyana, we have Trinidad. So we, we, we and OECS, of course. So we have, I think, a perfect opportunity for the region's position to be clearly articulated and it is being articulated. And, but I still think there's a job for centers like mine to make it resonate at home. I don't know how it is in Mexico. I don't know if people sit down and think, oh, the WTO is really important. <laughs> I think it's more, you know, NAFTA or USMCA, sorry. Now, like people understand that it's bread and butter for them at that level. But when they think of, oh, what's happening at MC12? Is it resonating with them? Yeah, and actually that's something that me personally, I want to to tell my students because sometimes they see it like so far away. Yes. But just like contextualizing this for them and how I usually try to explain to them like even if you don't do trade, even if you do like domestic yes. litigation, yes. this may have an impact on you. And I usually try to come up with a way that I can explain this because otherwise it does seem like uh, why should I care about that? Exactly. I mean, beyond it as an academic pursuit, which is what, you know, sometimes people think, oh, it's a nice thing to learn. It's a nice area to get into, especially if you want to do dispute settlement. But I think we're getting that to resonate. Yeah, like, for example, in USMCA, mm. previously in NAFTA, there's now, like, labor disputes. And I had, like, one of my students who was, like, doing labor litigation. Yeah. But I was telling them, like, look, this might be, like, your next... What you do Big for the next five years. No, it, and, and Rodolfo, I don't know if you feel... I mean, it took me a while to get to this point, but when you see your students doing big things, I mean, there's a little bit like a really, like, how did that happen? They're like catapulting ahead. And you think, wow, it's... I, 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 my mother was a teacher and she always used to say, that's the best feeling. You actually see like your when you, when students. You're seeing it. I didn't see it for many, for a long time, but now I'm seeing it. And it's like so rewarding. You it, feel like you did a little bit you, and you're like, yeah. You did a little bit. Well, you know, with my personality, I claim it. I say, <laughs> I say, you know, this is my, this is my student, like Santiago. He wasn't my student, but. Um, Wills is the chair of the fisheries negotiations. Yeah, I also feel a bit like that. Because and I was, he was, I was my a definite body before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you doing, I mean, I see Rodolfo <laughs> Rivas project, and I think, wow, these are people who I worked with, and I maybe had a small hand in their experience. And you just think, amazing. Yeah. And what can even come like, for many What years. is coming in yeah. the future is even more amazing. So, you know, it's a journey. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you, Janif. Thank you very much for your time. It no. was great seeing you. No, thank you, and thank you for insisting that we do this, because it was a long time <laughs> in the coming, but well worth it. So thank you. Thank and you. All the best. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you... <laughs>